Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Just saying the name Lincoln Park Zoo may trigger all kinds of great memories for you from when you were a child being taken there or as an adult taking your own children or just wandering around the zoo in the city to take it all in. The zoo was here before any of us, in fact, long before any of us. It began in 1868. 31 years after Chicago was incorporated as a city. I'm Bernie Tafoya sitting in for WBBM political editor Craig Delamore, and today we're going to talk about Lincoln Park Zoo, its 150-year history, its present, and its future. You're listening to At Issue. Our guests today include Megan Ross, Ph.D., the executive vice president of Lincoln Park Zoo, and Adrian Horrigan, the zoo's manager of animal records and programs. She's also the zoo's historian and curator of the exhibition From Swans to Science, 150 Years of Lincoln Park Zoo. Welcome to both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Dr. Ross, I'd first like your thoughts on what a historic year this is for the zoo. Well, I think it's really exciting that we're 150 years. I think the idea that Chicago has had Lincoln Park Zoo as an institution connecting people to nature in the heart of Chicago, uh, and generations have been able to utilize it, has been an amazing, exciting thing to celebrate. And Adrian, when the zoo began, really, that was near, where Lincoln Park Zoo is, was kind of the outskirts of the city at the time. Tell me about kind of how it, how it began. It was indeed. Um, some people might be aware that um, some of the space that's currently the zoo was originally Chicago City Cemetery. And you can see um, one of those tombs right near the Chicago History Museum to this day. At that point, it was literally the outskirts of Chicago. Um, the city was growing very rapidly at that time. And within a few decades, what had been the outskirts of the city became really prime real estate. And so it was converted into a park. Um, it was renamed Lincoln Park in 1865 following the death of Abraham Lincoln. And then the um, the growth into the beautiful park it is today began. So it began as, as a park, but how does it then begin as a zoo? I understand New York had a role to play here. They did. Um, Central Park had some animals at the time, and um, they had a, a group of swans. And there was a man in Chicago whose brother worked for the park system in New York City. And he knew about the swans in Central Park and thought it would be wonderful if we could have the same thing at Lincoln Park in Chicago. So they arranged a gift of two pairs of swans. And in 1868, in late August, those two swans came from New York Central Park to Chicago and they began Lincoln Park Zoo. And then how did it grow from there, though? It was very popular. Um, the park systems, people really wanted to, just like they do today, escape the hustle and bustle of the city. And so the park was a wonderful outlet for that. And the swans were delightful to the visitors, as the, as the reports of the day said. And so over the years, in the coming decades, the, the animals there really grew. And in 1870s, they built the first animal house. And from then on, um, this very 
popular public attraction just kept growing. And do you, do you know what the first Animal House was and, and, and who was there? Um, I'm not sure who exactly was there. It was used for um, some winter quarters for animals at the time. Um, there were a variety of mammals and a lot of birds, many of them North American mammals, um, and as well as some primates, which were considered very exotic at the time. Um, that first building was actually up at what is now north of the zoo on the North Pond. And then um, a few decades later in the 1890s, the first large animal house was built on what we would consider the zoo grounds today, um, which is right on the main mall, um, the site of what is now the Wild Things Cafe. And, and, and looking back, just so everybody gets kind of a point of reference, I looked it up. The population of Chicago is probably about 115,000 at the time. So having a, a park with just maybe a few animals was a, a kind of a cool thing then. The city wasn't as we know it today with a couple of million people. Absolutely, but it was growing very fast at that time. Right. So when the zoo was founded, you know, we're looking at about 100,000 people. And then a couple decades later, that's, you know, 300,000 people. So the green space was really appreciated by the city at that time. And for, and from there, though, and I love some of the pictures you have on the website, and I encourage people to go to Lincoln Park Zoo's website. What's well, lpzoo.org, right? Yes, and lpzoo.org slash 150. If you want to find out more about our timeline and what we have going on for the exhibition and other events celebrating our 150th. And there's some pretty cool pictures, too, on, on, the, uh, on the site. There are a lot. Yeah, we have a wonderful gallery. The timeline is interactive, and I really encourage people to check it out. It's really beautiful. Yeah, one of the ones I always like the old-timey photos with, you know, the old bicycles that go, you know, five feet high or whatever. I don't know how they got yeah, up there. Yeah, that's but... a great photo of the seal pool um, with the old penny-farthing bikes around. Um, the seal pool actually dates back to the 1870s was the first construction of that. Now, are either of you from Chicago? I am. I am not. So do you remember going there as a child and then, you know, now you know, okay, you know what it was back Absolutely. You know, then, but even now it's it's changed so dramatically and, and I won't even guess how many years. Yeah, I mean, I thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was lucky enough to grow up within walking distance of the zoo, so I have wonderful childhood memories of going um, as well as taking my nieces and nephews um, later on. So it's it's been just such a wonderful resource for everyone who's lucky enough to grow up in Chicago and experience it, or even just come visit. But over those decades, in the early years, it it started to expand. And in, in how, how did it grow? Uh, in what ways? Were people just donating money so they were able to buy, get more animals, or were there exchanges with other zoos, or what? Sure. Um for a long part of our history, we were part of the Chicago Park District. And so we, we received a lot of funding through that. Um, and also animals came in, they were donated. Um, most animals now that are at Lincoln Park Zoo, the vast majority of them are born in zoos and, um, and are bred through cooperative programs looking at the conservation of those species. Um, but in the, in the 1990s, we actually became um, a privately managed institution. And we have been free for 150 years, and we're very proud that we are, to this day, the only free privately managed zoo in the country. And talk about how that came to be, where it became a free zoo. Do you know? Um, it has always been a free zoo, right. actually. Um, and when it was part of the park, I believe it was in the 1870s, there was some talk about how to fund it because it was so popular that people really wanted to see more animals at the zoo. And apparently it, there was some news story that the park had turned down um, a donation of some animals because they didn't have the funding to support it. And the people of Chicago got very upset about this. And um, 
And the park commissioners at the time met and they decided that they would fund the zoo. And additionally, they decided that no matter what animals they ever had there in the future, that the zoo would always be free. And we have been for 150 years. And we've continued that on since we privatized in 1995. Our board of directors is very committed to continuing to be a free institution. So our funding sources now, we have a small subsidy from the park district, but most of our funding comes from private donations, from members, um, and really the generosity of people here in Chicagoland, as well as some earned revenue opportunities that we have here at the zoo. And you get to do some things. Uh, I mean, that that's what lets you do all the things you do. I mean, and you have some big capital programs that you've gone through in recent years that, you know, that that takes a lot of money. It does. And, you know, I think the great thing about Lincoln Park Zoo is that we're one of the oldest zoos in the country, but in a lot of ways, we're really one of the newest zoos in the country because we're constantly renovating our habitats. So we use science to figure out what our animals needs and what we can do to enhance welfare for the individual animals that are housed at the zoo. And we take that information and we create new habitats. So if you come to the zoo and you haven't been for a few years, you're going to come and see all new habitats across the park. And I remember as a kid, and that was 60 years ago, but I mean, when I was born, but they the habitats were so small. And, and in contrast, you'd go out to Brookfield and first off, you'd have to walk a mile in between each animal, I always thought. <laughs> when I was a kid, it felt like it. But the habitats were a lot larger at the time. And then you started to see Lincoln Park Zoo evolve as well. And it was such a welcome sight. And it looked more natural anyway as well. I think you started to see a lot of the evolution under Dr. Lester Fisher when he was the director, when we started really knowing a little bit more about what the animals' needs were. Uh, Dr. Fisher was a really big pioneer just in veterinary medicine as well as animal habitats. And so he really wanted to showcase animals in their natural habitat so people could better understand and appreciate what their needs were in the wild and also what the needs were for those individual animals. And as the decades have continued, we've really evolved that. So we're starting to even ask questions of the animals like, what do you prefer, this or that? Or Where are you spending your time and taking the information that they're showing us what they prefer to spend time in in their habitat, and we use that to design their next habitat. We give them more of what they prefer and less of what they seem to be avoiding. How do you do that? We do. uh, We have lots (laughs) of different scientists. Polar bear, (laughs) I have a question for you. We have a lot of amazing scientists on staff. We have about 45 individuals that are a part of our science team at the zoo, and so we have lots of different ways that we're asking these questions. Some of our scientists are physiologists, um, endocrinologists, where they're studying hormones and looking at how hormones, stress hormones, or even reproductive hormones are changing in different times of day and times of year. And then we also have behaviorists. So I'm an animal behaviorist. That's my background. And we're standing and watching animals and collecting the information about where they're spending their time, who they're spending their time near, what they're doing. And then we take all of that and we create a database that we can actually ask questions of to be able to better understand what they're doing. And then we even have cognitive behaviorists on grounds who are using touchscreen technology to ask animals questions. Right now, we're doing some preference testing with some of our apes, our chimpanzees and gorillas, and we're asking them, do you prefer a grape or do you prefer a carrot? And then how much do you prefer that grape over the carrot? Is it one grape is equal to five carrots or what is the quantity ratio that is important to you? And so when we start understanding the minds of the animals and how they're spending their time and their social dynamics and then what's going on inside them, 
We take all of that together and we kind of create the next habitat. Do you put the grapes and the carrots out together and see which one they go to? or We actually have a touch screen which shows different pictures of different food items and then they select which one they want. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, three-year-olds can do it. Why, why not a chimp, right? Well, there's lots of things that actually chimpanzees and gorillas can do that even humans can't do. So we've stopped these studies, but we were looking at how chimpanzees and gorillas do sequencing, where they put things in a numeric order. It's not really a numeric order. It's in an order. Right. Um, and so they can go and look at something for just a half a second and have lots of different images there, and then they can put them in sequential order after only looking at them for half a second. So imagine if you put up 15 numbers and you saw those 15 numbers on a screen for half a second and then all the numbers became white blocks and you'd have to remember where all 15 of those numbers were in order and they were randomly on the screen. That's some of the things that chimpanzees can do and humans cannot do. Wow. And and now is this th- are these things you learn through studying or this these things have been studied uh all over the place, and, and it's just something These are to things know. that we are actively studying at Lincoln Park Zoo, and we partner with other organizations. We, um, For a lot of our cognitive work, we partner with some organizations in Japan that actually are also studying chimpanzees. But we're really trying to understand from top to bottom what our individual animal needs are and what is important for that species. And we take all that information and we use it at the zoo to care for our animals in the best way that we can and provide excellent care. And hopefully they have good welfare as a result. And then also um, we translate that into some of our conservation work that we're doing in the Republic of Congo. Well, it sounds a lot different than the early days of Lincoln Park Zoo, where it was just a collection of zoo, a collection of animals, right? Because you've got, it's the science of it all. Absolutely. I mean, the zoo has evolved immensely over 150 years. And and as far as the, um, the you got chimps, but you got polar bears now. You got a new habitat for them. We'll get into that in a little bit. But um, when we get into the Lester Fisher years, is that mm-hmm. really when things did take off? And because he became a, a celebrity in Chicago, he was on TV. Absolutely, he was kind of like Rainer. the guy you'd see on the uh, ten ten thirty uh, comedy shows or the this the uh, the talk shows at night. They'd have the guy from the Cleveland Zoo or the Columbus Zoo, and but Lester Fisher was the guy you'd see on TV here all the time. Yeah, when Dr. Fisher um, took over the zoo in 1962, he recognized that um, while it was one of the oldest zoos in the country and very um, renowned, the facilities were some of the older in the country. And he began um, a major rebuilding campaign, which I think still continues to this day, that we're constantly rebuilding and redesigning and learning more about animals' needs and welfare and their choices and designing exhibits um, with that in mind. And so in the starting in the late 1960s through the 1970s, you really saw the shape of the zoo transform. Um, the main mall changed. Webster Street used to go all the way through there and you could park. Um, that was all rebuilt. The seal pool um, was redone at that time. Um, the farm opened. The children's zoo opened. And we've continued to see, you know, new habitats and new buildings throughout the decades. You're listening to At Issue on WBBM News Radio, and we're talking today about the 150 years of Lincoln Park Zoo. I'm Bernie Tafoya, and our guests are Dr. Megan Ross, the executive vice president of the zoo, and Adrian Horrigan, the zoo's manager of animal records and programs. And as we've been pointing out, she's the zoo's historian. As you can hear, she is the zoo's historian, and she's curator of the exhibition From Swans to Science, 150 Years of Lincoln Park Zoo. Let's talk a little bit about 
the future of Lincoln Park Zoo? Well, you're kind of in the future mode now with the new uh, Arctic ex- uh, habitat, right? We've, the Walter Family Arctic Tundra. Yes. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that. That The construction of that began, what, a year or two ago? The construction with that started about three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a old polar bear habitat that had a lot of water. In fact, it was one of the largest pools for polar bears in all of the zoos that I'm aware of. And what we realized through working with some of our conservation biologists in the field and well as well as some of our zoo colleagues is that the polar bears really weren't utilizing the water as much as we thought they would have been when we constructed that habitat back in the 80s. They were now really utilizing more natural surfaces. They like to dig. They really like to have that tundra type of feel. And so what we did is we took some of the information from the field, some of the information that we collected on our polar bears that were here, and then some of the information that we collected from other zoo colleagues. And we took all that and put it together and created a new habitat that provides choices and a variety of substrates for them and lots of different ways that they can get cool or have different microclimates if they want to be warmer, if they want to be cooler. And then it allows us a lot of variety in how we actually manage them. So it's a really dynamic habitat that has lots of different nooks and crannies. And if you come to the habitat to look for them, you might come to one viewing area and think, there's no polar bears here. <laughs> but you should continue on because the polar bears have a choice and they can spend time in lots of different areas and alcoves along the entire habitat space. And so you might want to just continue on the rest of the path to see if you can find them there. And how much larger is that habitat than, say, the old space? Do you know offhand? Square footage, I couldn't say for sure. I want to say it's about three times the space, if not more. I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure, though. But they still have a lot more room to roam and do the kinds of things that polar bears do. They do. They have a lot more space to roam. We have two really dynamic, exciting polar bears who seem to be getting along very well. We have Siku, who's our large male, and then we have Talini, who's the female who's in there with him. And sometimes I have people actually stop me and ask me if we have a grizzly bear in with our polar bear. (laughs) And that is because Talini is a giant fan of her natural substrates. Specifically, digging them up, getting in the pool and getting wet, and then rolling in the mud as much as possible. (laughs) But these two polar bears are really utilizing every nook and cranny of their habitat. They are really getting along very well, although it's the end of the breeding season, so they may not want to be with each other any longer. And Talini will be dictating that relationship, I can say. Siku is very (laughs) smitten, and Talini is definitely the one that is running how they are getting along. Um, But they are really capitalizing on every different element that we gave them. And that's something that gives us such great joy because we know we put in these different training walls so we can interact with them and take better care of them by having these training opportunities with them. We have different types of pools. We have a plunge pool. We have a snow machine. We have different areas where they can dig. We have dig pits. We're burying things out in the habitats for them. Then we have a larger pool that they can swim in and kind of tussle around together. So there's a lot of different exciting things happening in that exhibit. And I can tell you Talini and Siku are using every single one w- that we gave them. So Any chance that, that they will have a, a baby polar bear at, at some point? Well, I think that's our hope um, that we really would love for them to. But polar bears have something called delayed implantation. So we won't know if she's pregnant until later. Because even though breeding season is in the spring, they don't implant until the fall. And so we can't do any hormone testing on them. We do collect a lot of feces 
around the zoo, which you can imagine. It's a we, lot to go around. There's a yeah. lot to go around, <laughs> but we take a piece of it and we save it for our endocrinology lab, who actually runs hormone testing on a lot of the species, so we can kind of monitor their their progesterone and other things that might indicate if they're pregnant. But right now, we don't know. And they've so. always been... The polar bear exhibit's always been among the most popular at the zoo. Is it still that way, with especially with the new uh, uh, habitat? I think it is, and I think that we have two very special bears, and I think polar bears in general are so exciting and fun to see, and they're so large, and they really have such an important story to tell about climate change and what's going on in their habitat and in the wild, and so we really want to be able to have Siku and Talini be able to tell that story a little bit better so people can start thinking about how they might be able to personally affect a change that will help polar bears in the wild. What about some of the other animals at the zoo, maybe some of the more rare animals that the people may either not find elsewhere or are are endangered in some way in the wild and that you may be doing your part to making sure the, the species continues? What I can think, you tell us about that? I think there's a lot of... Um, a lot of people don't know that we have some species that don't exist in the wild. So we have some species of birds from Guam. We have the Guam kingfisher, and then we also have the Guam rail. These are two bird species that were eradicated due to the introduction of the brown tree snake on the island of Guam. And so in the 1980s, they found the last of the Guam kingfishers and the last of the Guam rails, and they brought them into zoos and aquariums. And zoos and aquariums have been captively managing those populations for decades. And the Guam rails actually have a release program where they're being released not back on Guam at this point. Um, They're being released on an island near Guam so that they can hopefully recover that species. But there's a lot of different conservation efforts that our species are involved with that I think people may not be aware of. And some of that is actually animals that are born at Lincoln Park Zoo going back out into the wild or that, at other zoos. In a well, that's pretty mm-hmm. neat. And and then, then the chances, well, that they'll, if they're put on an island near Guam, they may make their way to Guam if, they're, if they dare. Well, unfortunately, rails probably won't because they're <laughs> a flightless ground bird. Oh, well, that, so would, that would be very that. hard for them, and it problem. would be a bit of a swim. A little swim. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the kingfishers haven't been released yet. I think a part of it is because of their flight capacity, so they really want to make sure that they have a space that is appropriate for the kingfishers. And wildlife biologists are working with a lot of zoos and aquarium um colleagues as well to figure out what might be possible in the future. But right now they haven't found the sweet spot to be able to release them yet. And are there any animals that say you swap with other zoos that you want, that you might bring in or that you, you'll lend, lend them? T- talk about that a little bit. We do. We actually captive manage uh, large populations of zoo, uh, animals in zoos and aquariums. And we house the population management center for all of the zoos and aquariums that are accredited in um, by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. There's about 230 institutions that are accredited. And we have population biologists that are at the zoo that actually are like the match.com for <laughs> wild and for the zoos and that, excuse me, for the animals in zoos and aquariums. So they're sitting down every year looking at these um, pedigrees. We have something called stud books, which is essentially a computerized pedigrees of the populations and saying who should breed with whom. Who should be at what institution? Should you breed? Should you not breed? Should you be in a bachelor group? Should you not be in a bachelor group? What's your right social dynamic? So it's very specific for what species of animal they're talking about, but they generate a plan that makes all of these recommendations. And the goal of these programs is to really maintain genetic diversity for the populations and also ensure that each individual animal has what they need. So when they talk about 
flamingos, think about the hundreds of flamingos you might see, see at zoos and aquariums. They're talking about every single flamingo, every single social dynamic they're in, and whether or not they should breed or they shouldn't breed. And we do that with every species that we have. That is that like a, a, an online dating service uh, without the video, probably. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Although, I don't know. I feel like right now, sometimes uh, we have managers who come in and say, hey, I've got this data or I know this about this animal. So there's a lot of personality that goes into those Really? So there's well. a lot of, hey, how can we match this one up with that one? Well, so for species like Guam rails or kingfishers, which we just talked about, we're very interested in making sure we maintain genetic diversity as very paramount because those species only started with 10 individuals and now we're generations later. But animals like chimpanzees, we're really not talking about genetic diversity as much as we are saying, Bob, Bob is a, is a male that tends to get beaten up by big groups of females. So he probably we need to get him a stronger male that he can align himself with so he'll stop getting beaten up by females. This group seems to be a little bit rough for him. Let's move him to another institution. So it depends on wow. the species on how you're managing. Yeah, them. I mean, it gets that specific. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. And um, are there any animals that you'd like to have at the zoo that you don't? I can't think of anything. No. Adrian, you have anything that you... I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting what Megan was saying about um, the SSP programs. Um, it's actually the majority of our animals at the zoo are managed um, under those programs. Um, and also with reference to what you were saying about um, releasing animals to the wild, um, we're not just working on things like that in faraway places like Guam. This is something that we're doing right here um, in Illinois and in the upper Midwest. Um, one species that we've been talking about are swans, and the zoo began with two pairs of swans that came here. Um, and they were a European type of swan, a mute swan. And actually, if you go to the zoo today and look at the same waterfowl pond that those swans were swimming around in 150 years ago. Um, Today, you'll see trumpeter swans. And those are swans that are indigenous to Illinois and the upper Midwest. And over 100 years ago, they were almost extinct due to hunting and habitat loss. And for quite a few years, Lincoln Park Zoo has been working actively to reestablish swans and save their populations in the wild. And so those swans that you see swimming around in Lincoln Park Zoo, um, we have actually hatched over 40 swans and released those to the wild. And um, some of those swans actually came back, and one of them was in the first nesting pair in Illinois in over 100 years. Really? They, they came back to the zoo? They came back to Illinois. They came they, back to, oh, it came back to Illinois. So we actually got wild swans back in Illinois. Well, and, and when you release them to the wild, where do you release them? I mean, in what general area? Um, I believe the most recent releases have been um, in Iowa, in Clear Lake, Iowa. At, um, at, a, at a park there. So the more recent releases that Lincoln Park Zoo has been involved with have been as a part of a program with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, and it's a part of their wetland recovery program where they've been releasing trumpeter swans. But there's been, historically, there have been other release programs that zoos and aquariums have participated in in Michigan mm-hmm. and Wisconsin and Oregon as well. well and, and I know you've talked about asking the animals what they want and give them choices, Oh, I, I would imagine you also take surveys of the people who come to the zoo on kinds of things that they want. What are they telling you? We do. We have um, a whole team of people who actually are out at the zoo asking questions, trying to better understand what people are looking for, how their visit is, how we can improve upon that. So 
So we don't just use science on how we care for the animals. We also use science on how we care for all of our guests and visitors that come to the zoo. And what kinds of things are on, on the horizon in the future? What kinds of habitats are you looking to update that maybe in a dramatic way, possibly? Well, we're very excited about the new Searle Visitor Center, which is going to be opening later this fall. It's under construction right now, and I apologize for the mess when you walk <laughs> in from the East Gate. But we're very excited about how we're going to have a new welcoming visitor center. And then we're looking to, to do some renovation work later on on some other habitats, and I think we're going to be announcing those a little bit later. Oh, keep us hanging, huh? Yeah. Our guests on At Issue this week have been Dr. Megan Ross, the Executive Vice President of the Zoo, and Adrian Horgan, the Zoo's Manager of Animal Records and Programs, as well as the Zoo's Historian and Curator of the Exhibition From Swans to Science, 150 Years of Lincoln Park Zoo. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Thanks to engineer Lola Vanderpoy for her help, and thank you for listening. I'm Bernie Tafoy at WBBM News Radio on 105.9 FM. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.